Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi everyone and welcome back to the latest episode of the Dope Black Women podcast with your host and co-founder, Roshan Roberts. Hey, hey, hey. Um, so I'm really looking forward to getting into this episode as I'm going to be joined by Vanile Makwakwa, who's the founder and author of Wealth and Money. And we're going to be exploring generational trauma. So without further ado, I'm going to get into our first question, which is what makes you a dope black woman? I think I'm a dope black woman because I don't believe that there's a recipe to life. And as a result, I think it means that I'm very, very open to a lot of things, a lot of uh, different ways to uh, different ways of living. And I consider myself very carefree in that regard. And I think that's what makes me dope because I can connect with people from so many different walks of life. Like I've lived in over 15 different countries and I think a lot of that is just coming from the fact that I just think that people get to be who they are, that there's no one size fits all to this thing that we call life. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that's amazing. That sounds really good. I, I can't believe you lived in 15 different countries. <laughs> yeah. it's. I mean, I've been traveling for a while, right? Like I've been traveling for about 17 years of my life. So right after uni, when everyone went and got a job, I had my finance degree and I was like, that's it. I'm going to go live on a cruise ship and just be in the Bahamas and Florida and try to figure myself out. And I just didn't stop. Like I just kept going. I've never stopped. I guess there's just no reason to stop traveling, really. I mean, now, like, being a nomad is, like, a thing. But for me, it's always been just, if I land in a country, I'll stay for as long as my spirit wants me to stay. So it's never that, like, I'm in a country for four weeks. It's like, I'll come back to countries several times. I'll move, I'll come back, I'll experience new continents, all that. So that for me is a big, big thing. I feel like your journey of living in so many different countries is a whole nother topic, podcast (laughs) and conversation to have, because that just sounds super interesting. But on the topic of generational trauma, then, when we consider our finances, what does that actually mean? And what does that look like? Hmm. 
Yes. So I think the best way to describe generational trauma and money trauma across the bloodline is that is to just say, you know, we're usually a lot of our emotions and a lot of our nervous system responses to money are learned responses. And so you could also say that they inherited responses because we kind of learn them from the womb and our parents learned those responses as well growing up or from the womb and all these responses are now impacting the way that we behave with money right now as people. So if we grew up in a family, for example, where when we were, when we saw our parents get money, their nervous system was completely dysregulated in some way, or there was anxiety and fear or shame and guilt about having the money, we may find ourselves reacting in the same way behaviorally with money and not even understanding where that's coming from. But the thing is, we co-regulate to our caregivers' nervous systems from a very young age. So Mm. we don't even know why we're behaving the way we're behaving. All that we say, then you'll end up with family stories like, in my family, we're just not good with money. In my family, we just don't know how to make a lot of money. My family, we're not good with saving or we can save, but we just don't know how to grow money. That comes from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Those, un- those beliefs are not set in stone. That is not the holy grail, you know. But we often say those things and we find ourselves saying those things, not even understanding where it's coming from. And then we literally, it's kind of almost like when we say, I open my mouth and I hear my mother, <laughs> you know. It's the same kind of thing sometimes with money. It's like I get money and I see my family, you know. I respond in the same way with money. And that doesn't always have to be the case. It's just that we learn how to behave with money from somewhere and often it's from our families and a lot of these uh, responses are deeply wired into the nervous system. That sounds really interesting. I never ever thought about how you could have like inherited ideas or beliefs towards money that have come from being in the womb. I didn't think it would be something that could start from that early on. But in your own experiences, what's that been like? Wow, it's been very, very interesting. Can I share a study that was done before I even jump into my own experience? Sure. Because I think it will help people. So there's tons of incredible studies done on generational trauma, by the way. I mean, really, really fascinating stuff. Um, but the one that I want to share today is a study that was done with mice and cherry blossoms. So they did the study where they introduced the smell of cherry blossoms to um, a group of mice, and then they electrocuted the mice. I know, really, really awful. So every time they int- they um, introduce the scent of cherry blossoms, they would electrocute the mice. And this happened for a while until the mice, whenever they started to smell cherry blossoms, would shiver and shake, right? And so the next with the next generation, they didn't electrocute any mice. So this is important because the study goes into like 20 generations in, right? The only generation that was electrocuted was the first generation. 
and then they would start to shiver and shake when they smelled cherry blossoms. Second generation would smell cherry blossoms, they would shiver and shake without the electrocution. Third generation, same thing. Fourth generation, same thing. Fifth generation, same thing. Only the first generation had been electrocuted when they smelled cherry blossoms. But 20 generations in, the mice had this irrational fear of cherry blossoms, even after all the other generations had passed on and died, you know? The other mice were still shaking whenever they smelled cherry blossoms. So the reason why I bring up the study is because for most of us, there's some things that happened in our families maybe 10 generations back, five generations back that have to do with money. And it so affected the nervous system of the ancestors that, exper that experienced that. And whenever they started to deal with money, they would shiver and shake or they would have an adverse reaction to investing or to increasing income. And now we are struggling with those nervous system responses and we don't even know why, just like those mice. So what the researchers started to understand is that actually trauma is passed down from generation to generation in the DNA, right? So, and it's called epigenetics inheritance. So with a lot of us, we are reacting to money in ways that we don't understand, you know? We're giving a lot of the stories that we give is just like, oh, it must be something from childhood. But what, I, what was happening with me in my work was that myself, when I started this work, I didn't understand why I was having panic attacks around money, why I was behaving the way that I was with money. Yes, my family behaved that way with money, but why did they behave that way with money? So this must have come from somewhere, right? So this is where my body of work then um, started to evolve, which is it's not just enough that we feel the way that we feel about money, that we think the way that we think about money. I wanted to understand where does this come from and how do we heal it so that the next generation doesn't have to go through what we are going through? So in terms of your own experiences then, what, what did you find? Did you ever talk to your parents about it? Oh, wow. Yes, my parents, <laughs> I've done more than talk, right? Like my parents have had to read the books, magazine articles, watch me on television, unpack like our family trauma and how that links to money. So my money story really was a little was more intense, which is why I think I had to start doing this work. Mm -hmm. So I studied finance at UCT, decided to go traveling, as I've said before. And then I decided I'm going to go do an MBA and I'm done in my head. I was like, I'm done with traveling. I now want to get a high paying job because I convinced myself that this is what adulting looks like. So I was like, I'm going to be an investment banker. I'm going to go into private equity. So I'm going to go, I'm going to do an MBA and that's what my life is going to be like. And I'm going to work like 16 hour days. This is no joke. Like that was my dream. <laughs> Right. So then I decided to go do this MBA. I moved to Boston, Massachusetts, did my MBA. And when I started, when I graduated with my MBA, something really weird happened. 
I started getting panic attacks whenever I had to handle money. Now, until you deal with panic attacks and money is the actual cause of that, you don't realize how often in a day you have to handle money. You want to go buy milk. You need to have, you need to touch money. You want to go, you want to get onto the T, which is the tram in Boston. So if you want to get onto the T, you need to get out your purse and pay for, for the ticket. You want to hop on a bus, you need to buy a ticket. You want to do anything, go to a bar, you need to deal with money. You want to withdraw money, you need to touch money. So I was having panic attacks throughout the day, and it was about money until it got so bad. I could no longer even go to the ATM to withdraw money. Really? And I felt, so, yeah, I just, it was just the weirdest thing. So it was just like my entire life was about panicking around managing money. So a few weeks later, my panic attacks progressed so badly that I actually ended up spending about almost two years in bed, not being able to get up and do things. Like it was really just this weird experience of just being super depressed because of money until one day a friend of mine told me about Vipassana meditation and a friend of mine asked me, he said, Van, you come from a family of shamans and you know about ancestral work. So do you really believe that all this is because is all yours in this lifetime. So maybe the way to heal your depression, the way to heal the panic attacks is to start looking into ancestral work and ancestral trauma. So I went to Vipassana. It's a lot of like spirituality, but also understanding what's happening in the body and integrating somatic healing and the research that has been done around um, trauma. And what I started to understand was that trauma isn't the big things that happen in life. It's just events that happen too quickly or events that are too overwhelming for us to process and integrate. So that means that what is a trauma for me may not necessarily be a trauma for my siblings or my um, cousins or any other family members. So it also depends on the allostatic load of each individual, which is to say, how much can you as an individual process at a nervous system level? So, and if the event leaves you feeling powerless, that that can also be deeply traumatic. So in my family, I I grew up, my mom and my mom had this really interesting life, I guess. From the ages of zero to 12, I could, I had everything that I wanted in terms of finances and everything. But then my mom had it in her head when my uncle came back from exile because of South Africa's history with apartheid, People went off to exile, or I'll say would have been killed by the apartheid government, and then they came back in 1991. After 1991, when Nelson Mandela was um, released, a lot of them came back. But they came back with a lot of Western ideals and very, very different uh, to how South Africa is, you know, because a lot of them had literally essentially grown up in the West or in um, Eastern Europe or Russia. So my mom believed that my uncle, having studied in the West, would know more about money than her. And so she literally gave up all her investments and everything to my uncle. 
um, and she um, again made him our guardian as well. And when I moved in with my uncle, my uncle had a different way of managing money. So every time at month end, he would like blow money and his nervous system was completely dysregulated where money was concerned. He took my mother's investments and within a year, everything that she had spent like 12 years building was gone, you know, and this is livestock. This is everything. I saw my mom go from just owning everything and having so much. And when I say my mother had so much, she was like one of the first women, even in South Africa, the first people that I saw drive an AMG or Mercedes <laughs> Benz. And like people would be like outside when she would come pick us up at boarding school, people would be like, we've never seen these cars before. And she never believed in debt. Everything was done cash. And she believed in having your own businesses and investments. And my mom is still an incredible entrepreneur to this day. But because of, and this is where I talk about the intersection of gender and race, that it's all the trauma that also comes from that, that we also need to look at that when we talk about money. My mom was convinced because my uncle had studied in the West and he was a man that he would grow her finances so much faster yeah it's interesting you say that because I was going to ask you if your mom already you know had success already had lots of money already was what I think a lot of people would consider someone who was already financially savvy why would she still then feel like she needed to put it in give her money to be controlled by somebody else but I guess like you're saying when you when you focus on these other factors such as gender that plays a part in her that played a part in her decision it played a huge part in a decision. Not, not necessarily, here's the thing, it wasn't actually the gender that played the biggest role. It was the fact that my uncle was studied in the West. He'd lived in the West. So in my mother's view, obviously, because he's Western, he must know, he's, he's educated in the West. He speaks German, he spoke German, he spoke all these other languages. And in her head, she would actually say this, he thinks like a white man. So as a result, that means that he is going to grow the family fortune faster, right? So there's so much there to unpack in terms of that thinking. I mean, she has since had to alter that completely because her life experience has changed, but also thinking about where apartheid South Africa was in the early 90s and how that generation had been educated around thinking about themselves and how they viewed themselves as black people. There was a lot that went into that decision. And a lot of it was that my uncle was had studied in the West, so he must know more. So then we were shipped off, gotten out of boarding school to live with my uncle. Again, my uncle had never brought up any kids, by the way. He had no kids at that point. But the belief, again, was that he is well-educated from the West and so they know best how to bring up kids, you know. Again, really, really bizarre. So we went to live with my uncle. But every time my uncle got paid and every time my uncle managed money, 
he could not, he couldn't sleep. We had parties. Think of The Great Gatsby. If anyone has ever read The Great Gatsby or watched it, really awesome. Like, it's a great example of this. When my uncle had money, we had parties nonstop at my house. We had some of the top politicians, some of the top celebrities nonstop until there was no money left. So what I, what team me was learning and was co-regulating to was a nervous system that whenever there was money around would completely be dysregulated and would get dysregulated. So guess what? When I then finished my MBA and I started making money and making more money than I'd made before, my nervous system only knew how to how to deal with money in that same manner. Every time I managed money, my nervous system was dysregulated, right? Would completely dysregulate until I was just so depressed. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't handle money. I spent two years not earning money because the idea of actually handling money was too much for me. You know, I couldn't do anything. So Everyone around me was literally taking care of me, like just had really great friends. And at the time I was dating, um, I was dating a guy and he was taking care of so much for me financially, but it really wasn't sustainable. So this is how I came to do this work because I just, I saw the extreme example of not being able to regulate your nervous system. And I had to literally go into the parts of my teens to help my team, my inner team, regulate her nervous system in the past so that she could stop hijacking my nervous system whenever I had money, any bit of money. For me, I always say to people that at the time, what felt comfortable for me was negative $500 in my bank account, not even zero. It was a negative 500 US dollars that was the most comfortable for me, not having anything, actually owing money. And at the time, I was also $60,000 in debt because I had to live off credit cards. I couldn't earn money since I couldn't manage money. Talking about money, invoicing people would trigger me. Everything would just bring on an attack. So I had to live off of debt until I could find a way to regulate my nervous system. Now, the flip side of that is that within three and a half years, once my nervous system was regulated, I paid off 60,000 US dollars in debt. And I've been debt free ever since. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. I wanted to ask you, you know, you spoke a lot about your experiences of generational trauma and what it showed up for you. But for someone who's listening, who might be able to identify with some of the things you've said or relate to it, what advice do you have practically for someone to actually move forward from that and to heal from those generational traumas? Okay, so this advice also applies to people who are just struggling with mild panic and anxiety around money. The first thing that I did, honestly, in that bed as I was freaking out, was I got this idea to start after I came back from the Vipassana. I started looking at my bank account every single day for uh, five minutes a day. And I would look at my bank account and I would also hold money at the same time in my hand. 
hands. And then I would look at that for five minutes, feel the money in my hands for five minutes and not try to change anything, not try to make myself right or wrong with how I was spending money and what was going on in my bank account. And then I would just set the timer for five minutes and then just observe my breathing observe, not try to change, observe my breathing and then observe the sensations in my body without trying to change anything. And the reason why this exercise is so powerful, I later started to understand as I started to talk to neuroscientists and therapists and stuff was like, I was like, why is this so helpful? And one of the things that came up was an understanding that like you're literally rewiring the amygdala, the reptilian part of the brain. So one of the things to understand is that the reptilian part of the brain, which is the amygdala, hasn't evolved at the same rate as humans have evolved. So even though we've had like thousands of years of evolution, think of this part of the brain as being still stuck 10,000 years ago, you know, and that's the emotional center of the brain, which is why even when people are highly intelligent, you can see a person completely lose it and you're like, this doesn't make sense. You know, a lot of it has to do with the amygdala and the fact that we are actually still... sorry, we are still stone age people at heart, I guess. So when you do this exercise and you don't try to change anything, you're basically allowing your brain and your nervous system to start working together and to see that you are safe. Money is safe. You're just bringing yourself to the present moment and the body is able to just feel the mind is able to feel the body and you're able to feel yourself and the amygdala is able to see that actually this is not a real danger so you don't have to go into a state of fight or flight whenever you look at your bank account whenever you deal with money that money is something that is safe Mm -hmm. and that will start to translate into your everyday life and help you start to may uh, start to deal with money from a space of absolute calm. We're not trying to get into a state of like high vibe or excitement or positivity. You just want to be calm and regulated, right? So that you can make the best decisions in every moment when it comes to money. Yeah. And obviously I know you've worked with people directly, a range of women in particular, when it comes to this conversation, when it comes to the idea of healing from generational trauma. But I wanted to ask you, from your experience, is there anything that's particularly common or that keeps coming up with the clients that you work with? Oh, wow. This is a great question. Because I work mainly with women of colour around the world, right, I think that the big thing that keeps coming up, a lot of it is just this um, fear of losing love. That's what I've named it, right? Which is that if I allow myself to expand, I will be alone. I'm going to lose my community or my family. Or the big thing when it comes to family is if I make a lot of money and then my family sees that I make a lot of money, they're going to start asking me for money and there'll be more pressure being put on me. Then I'll have to set boundaries and people will hate me or Mm. people will say, oh, look at her. She's so full of herself. She's so, she's just too much. She's so egotistic, right? And there's the fear also that even with the friend, even with your friends, that 
you'll go to family dinners or you'll go out to think, uh, to barbecues with friends and suddenly people will expect you to invest in their business ideas. Uh, people will, <laughs> yeah, like that suddenly you'll become the bank for your friends and family. And how do you then put boundaries in place when that happens? And that yeah. literally keeps a lot of women of color in particular it stops a lot of us from moving forward because this is the fear is that you will have to choose between friends and family and having love and your finances, you know? So if you don't have a lot of money, then people leave you alone, right? (laughs) But if you suddenly have a lot of money, you go to the family barbecue uh, people are coming and pitching their business ideas to you, all sorts of things. And then you have to say, no, thank you. So this is a real, real fear for most people. That, And then the fear also is that if you put in boundaries, then people won't like you. You know, if you start saying, no, I can't invest in your business idea. No, I can't, um, I can't loan you money to pay ABCD. Then the idea, then most people are scared that like people will not like them and then you'll end up alone. So then it's this really horrible, um, I guess like a puzzle in the subconscious mind. It's, it then becomes this, do I want love? Or do I want money? And because both these things are survival issues, right? Most times, though, people are going to choose, I can expend just a little bit, just enough, but not be too different from my family and friends so that I stand out because then at least I can still have the love. So that is a very, very real fear. That's really interesting, actually. Um, and it's weird because I was talking to my brother the other day about like what would happen if we won the lottery. Yeah. And I was like, if I won the lottery, I wouldn't tell anyone. And he was like, not even me. And I'm like, no. And he's like, not even mom. And I'm like, no. And he's like, why not? And I'm like, because if I tell people I've won the lottery, let's say I said I won a million dollars, not even not even a million. Let's say I won 250,000. Now I, without anyone saying anything, I now feel obliged to give people money and to do things that I probably don't even want to do in the first place. Whereas if I don't tell anyone about it, I would still naturally share and be, you know, have gratitude and, and, and all those sort of stuff, invest in people's things. But it would come from a place of me wanting to do it and not the pressure or expectation of others wanting that from me. Do you get what I mean? Yeah, but don't you think people would start asking, why are you able to do these things? <laughs> I, have, I have to figure that out when the time comes. I mean, if God wants to bless me with the lottery, I'm happy for that challenge. <laughs> um, but that, yeah, that's absolutely fine. But, you know, I know you, you've written your book called Heart, Mind and Money, which explores... Yeah how to use emotional intelligence for financial success and I know within that book you explore I think 25 different range of emotions but would you be able to take us through perhaps one or two on the podcast to help us to be able to understand how it actually impacts the way we spend and save and things like that Mm -hmm. okay so let me talk about my two favorite emotions which I think lots of people never ever talk about this when it comes to money guilt and shame. I'm going to start with shame, right? I think shame is such a fascinating emotion. 
Um, remember how I shared that, like, I thought that I was, um, well, not I thought, I was depressed for two years and I was struggling to get out of bed. I mean, like, I would get out of bed, get things done, but it was just always a struggle to just get out and get up. And when I was up, I would put on really brave faces and everything. So one day I realized that actually my depression, I'll never forget this, where like I was sitting in meditation and then I started doing some EFT tapping, went back to meditation. I did this for like eight hours a day for six, for the first six months after I came back from the Pasna, because I was just like my spirit really needed to get to a place where like I could really start to integrate what was coming up for me and the memories that were coming up and tied to these emotions. And I had this realization that, holy crap, actually more than depression, what I am feeling is a crushing sense of shame. Now, shame is an emotion that makes us want to hide. It's, it's an emotion that tells us that there's something wrong with us. So most of us, and I usually take most clients through this exercise if they are heavily indebted, which is that working with the shame of being in debt. Right. Most of us make, some, make ourselves wrong and make it wrong to be in debt. And as long as you, you carry the emotion of shame, shame is going to make you want to hide. And it's going to be really, really hard to come from this place of wanting to hide, to step forth and be seen so that you can pay off your debt. And because of that, most of us run away from our bills. The, the shame triggers this need to hide and even the ability for us to face our mistakes. Mm -hmm. I'm going to call them mistakes, right? Or when we look at our bills and we see our bills as the thing that is wrong with us, as something wrong, it makes it hard for us to then look at our bills. So most often when we're dealing with shame and we're in debt, you'll notice that we avoid our debt. We, it was really, really hard to even compile a debt repayment strategy. So we'll go, we'll leave bills unopened. We won't open credit card bills. We won't take the calls from the debt collectors. That's all elements of hiding. And that's usually tied to shame. So shame has a huge impact on debt. And also when we feel ashamed and we feel like there's something wrong with us, it becomes hard for us to price our products and services appropriately and accordingly. So most times we'll think that there's something wrong with us who's going to pay me that and so we make ourselves wrong and we underprice so shame keeps us in the spiral where we're underpricing under negotiating our salaries underpricing our products and services which means that we actually don't have enough money to pay back the debt so then we recreate debt just to be able to continue living so that's the impact that shame has on our finances. And now guilt. Guilt is a really, really interesting emotion, right? So often we tend to feel guilty when we... Uh, so guilt, let's just, let me just rephrase that. Guilt is an emotion that we feel when we feel we are doing something wrong. So where shame says, you are wrong, something is wrong with you. Guilt says, 
you have done something wrong, which makes sense. I mean, if you think of people that do something wrong and then they feel guilty about it, it's the action that is the issue. So if you feel guilty about making money, which this is actually common for people that are the first in their families to make money in a way that is easier than the previous generation. So especially for people that are the first in, uh, the first to go to university, the first to break through $100,000 a year or whatever the family um, income is that has been the highest up until then, you're more likely to feel guilty only just because there's a part of us that feels like we are betraying the tribe. Again, because the amygdala is still operating in the stone age. So we are more geared to become, we're more tribal people as humans, you know, we're tribal animals, really. So this idea of individuality is really, really new to us. So it will feel like we're doing something wrong by going, by making more money than our tribe, than our families. So in that case, you may find yourself always self-sabotaging or manifesting emergencies whenever you do have money or find yourself getting rid of money or even find yourself feeling like you don't deserve money and even uh, undercharging for your products and services or constantly going for lower paying jobs, even though you are seriously overqualified. Because guilt, if it's wrong, if it feels wrong to make money, then guilt is an emotion that causes us to rectify the situation. And how do you rectify a situation that is wrong? you make it right. And if making more money is what is making you feel guilty, then you're going to find a way to make less money or to get rid of the money that you make. So guilt is also an emotion that will keep you really, I find that guilt is one emotion that most of us don't even really understand. It just feels like, no, I don't want more money. You know, even when you more money. It will feel like that. It feels like, no, I don't want to charge more. And we don't even understand where that's coming from. And as you dig deeper, you may find that it's at the root co- at the root of this is the emotion of guilt. And part of you is trying to rectify this feeling of guilt by making everything right, by not allowing money in or charging appropriately. That's really interesting, actually. And there's there some parts of that that I could really relate to, especially, and I don't know if I would say it's guilt. Maybe it is. If I, maybe, I, maybe I need to have a conversation with myself, do one of your courses, <laughs> um, and really dig deep to understand it. But I know for myself, whenever I come into like money from extra work or maybe being gifted or whatever, I always think I have to save it because I think of like a rainy day. Mm. So I've got like quite a lot of savings accounts. I've got like an emergency account that's like... God forbid someone was to die or I was to be abroad and need to pay for health or like just something like a really big, expensive, costly emergency fee I have a savings account for. Then I've got another account which is which is similar, but it's more for like unexpected costs. So maybe like my car tire going flat or something like that. And then I have a savings account which is just for savings in case I need to like quit my job and just take a break from life for like six years so that's something that I'm trying to build Mm -hmm. and then I have another savings account that is for holidays and then I have another savings account which is a savings account that I can actually spend um which probably has the smallest amount in it 
And it's just like, as I'm having this conversation with you, I'm just like, why am I not allowing myself to, to, why am I not allowing myself to actually spend the money that I've worked hard to get? Mm, mm, This is so fascinating. I, I love this conversation because I also say to people, if you find yourself in that, uh, in that situation, right, can you give yourself permission to open up another account, which is a fun account where you just put 10% of your income in there just for fun on a monthly basis, just so that you can start having, start associating money with pleasure as well. Because most of us are so willing to save money and but we don't know how to spend money on ourselves but more than that I have this conversation a lot with a lot of women is that what about making money work for you what about investing in money and making money grow so that money has little babies that start to work for you we have the conversation of saving so much we talk a lot about saving but it's to the detriment something uh, sometimes of investments and building an investment portfolio and really working on getting to the day where you just can take early retirement and not ever have to work because money is working for you. That's what it means to build generational wealth. So that's another element of money that, that I feel we need to be having more conversations about, especially as women and in particular as black women. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because when it comes to investments, that's something that um, I've spoken about for maybe like two years. Like, yeah, I'm going to invest. I'm going to invest. <laughs> and I like, haven't done any real investments. I mean, I have like, I use a savings account called um, Plum. And on the Plum account, I do have an investment account. But it's not something that I'm actively putting effort in to do. But on your, on your point about us being women and especially black women, I think it's interesting because when I explore the idea of investing or investments, I have one friend who's a who's a woman, a black woman that I could speak to about it. She does a lot of stuff involving like crypto and Bitcoin and stuff like that. Um, but outside of her, the people that I would go to speak to about it would actually just be men. And the people that mm. actively come to speak to me about it are men, you know? So I do think there is this sort of like disparity or real difference between a lot of men and women um, when it comes to the idea of investing. And maybe that's that's something that, we could do like an event for DPW where we look at investing and building a portfolio specifically to kind of help a lot of us who like me have thought about doing it for a few years, but haven't actually actively done it and don't know where to start. Yeah, no, definitely. It's one of the things that it seems so high tech with the language that's used, et cetera. So investments, I think become because of the language that's used and it's very financial and very like, oh, you know, it makes it very um, scary for most people to then enter that space. But really what an investment is, is you're just putting your money in something and over the long term, this thing will make you more money and hopefully will make you money without you having to work for that money. You know, so it can be property, it can be crypto, it can be shares, it can be anything. And my advice to people is to say, look at the kind of vision that you want to have for your life, the kind of vision that you want in, say, five years, 10 years, 15 years, and then talk to a financial advisor. Most people don't know this, but wealth managers, financial advisors, 
they actually are not that expensive. And like having a sitting down for with them for a conversation, some of them will give free sessions. My financial advisor gives free sessions once off to people. So there's many financial advisors that do that. And just say, this is the vision that I have for my life. This is the kind of life that I want my kids to have. This is the kind of life I want to have. Uh, what are my options with what I earn? How can I invest this money? And then just start having those conversations to say, how much will I need to be able to have in another 15 years or 10 years or even five years to be able to have this lifestyle? And their job is to help you figure that out and put it together. You know, so it's, we don't even have to do it on our own. I think one of the things that I also love to teach um, a black woman in particular is that most of us have been taught that we have to do things alone. We don't. You mm -hmm. get to hire support. You get to have support. You get to have your wealth managers. You get to go looking for those people. And I think when I started my investment portfolios was when I was actually paying off the $60,000 in debt. And this is going to sound crazy, but guys, I started with like $20 a month. That's what I started really? investing. Yes. That's all I could afford. And my financial advisor, we sat down and she was like, it's going to get better. You know, it's going to be awesome. It's going to get better. And now like she talks to me and she's like, wow, your portfolio could be well over a million dollars within the next 10 years or so. But like I started with $20 a month. You know, and this is not even counting my property portfolio. This is just purely my shares and investment portfolio, right? And it's barely breaking the bank when I'm doing things. It's like with every time my, in, my income has increased, my financial advisor contacts me every quarter and we re-look at where the money is going and where I should be increasing my um, my investments. She'll be like, okay, now, okay, this is great for this quarter. Let's increase here. Let's put more money here. Let's put more money here. I'm investing amounts of money that I never thought I would ever be able to invest. So I'm also a fan of you don't have to do this wealth creation journey alone. There are people that are literally trained to do that, who will sit with you, help you look at your portfolio, talk to you about certain things, tell you why this is going up, why this is going down and what you're going to do about it. Do you want to keep the money in there? Do you want to take it out? So yeah, I speak like I'm super savvy with this. Yes, I studied finance. This is true. So it's a, it may be a little easier for me, but I also have like a really great financial advisor. And I was very, very picky in who I chose, someone that understood my vision. So we get to have support in all areas. It doesn't have to be something that we struggle with on our own. I love that. I've, you know, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like we've really gone on a journey and explored so many things. But I guess for anyone listening who can relate to maybe having anxieties when it comes to their finances, who can relate to maybe, you know, like what I said about considering investing but not actually doing the work, or can relate to having generational trauma and it impacting them negatively in the way they view, spend and save money. Um, maybe not all of those things, but if you just wanted to focus on one, what would be your like one piece of advice for them? My one piece of advice to people would literally be, it's never about the money. Even when you're thinking it's about the money, it's never about the money. If you hear this podcast, I spoke about like how I paid off my $60,000 in debt. 
by literally like learning how to regulate my nervous system around money, right? And also dealing with my shame and my emotions around money. So it's about often a bunch of other things other than the actual money and numbers. Even me going to talk to an investment, um, talk to my financial advisor and work with her over the years. I needed to get to a point where I wasn't freaking out talking about money and dreaming, you know. <laughs> I had to be okay um, emotionally talking about money and not feeling like, ooh, yeah, in your dreams, I had to believe that that $20 was going to eventually grow and become more and more every year. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the Dope Black Women podcast. For anyone listening who you think that this podcast could benefit, please feel free to share it with them. And don't forget to like, share and subscribe. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah.